Today's episode is presented by Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Buried in the countryside, 50 miles outside London, lies Bletchley Park, where Second World War codebreakers including Alan Turing, famously cracked the German Enigma code. The result was to shorten the war by several years. So it's a symbolic venue for the UK's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, hosting an international gathering on the 1st of November to decode one of the biggest technological challenges of our age, artificial intelligence. Over a hundred leading figures from the world's biggest tech companies and governments globally have assembled for the UK's AI Safety Summit. Because AI does not respect international boundaries, this mission demands international coordination and collaboration. President Biden and I believe that all leaders from government, civil society and the private sector have a moral, ethical and societal duty to make sure that AI is adopted and advanced in a way that protects the public from potential harm. In recent days, the Prime Minister reiterated dire warnings about the risks posed by AI to humanity if it's allowed to develop unchecked. His hopes for the summit's legacy are clearly high. Even if these risks or the probability of these risks are small, because they are so significant, the right thing to do is to make sure that we're taking the steps to protect ourselves. Welcome to Powerplay, Politico's transatlantic podcast, where I talk to some of the most influential figures on either side of the Atlantic. My guest this week is Rishi Sunak, the first Prime Minister to appear on Powerplay, and we've recorded our conversation in Number 10 Downing Street, where the clocks are certainly not from the era of galloping technology. And we want to make sure that our children are protected online as they are you know, walking around our streets. It's interesting that the clocks here in Downing Street are not really digital, are they? I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and to unpick what Mr Sunak had to say, I'll be joined later in the podcast by Politico's own top experts. But first, my conversation with Rishi Sunak. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, welcome to Powerplay. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Anne. So you've pulled off something of a power play of your own this week, getting the US and China, 25 other countries, to sign a communique on frontier AI, effectively trying to de-risk and find safe ways to use this emerging technology. It is still a voluntary commitment to work together. Do you think it can turn into a concrete collaboration? And what will people see from it? I think the first thing to say is this is the first step in this conversation. And it was important to me that we brought together the leading AI nations, but also experts from civil society and the developers of the technology themselves. And we've been able to successfully do that. And as you say, for the first time, everyone has signed up to the same bit of paper, acknowledging that we need to develop a shared understanding of these risks and then work collaboratively together on how we mitigate them. So I think that in and of itself is a big achievement. It's the start of a journey, as you say, because there's still work to do at the summit. The leaders, including myself, Vice President, EU Commission President, 
president and others uh, will be sitting down with the CEOs of these companies to talk about that and how do we turn these principles into practical action that will benefit people and mitigate against the risks. Earlier, uh, I've announced the creation of an AI safety institute here in the UK to do that research and testing. The US have announced something similar. They'll work very closely together. So look, you're seeing governments like ours take a lead in establishing the capability to do that. And we need to then work with these companies to get access to the models and do the testing. I'll come on to that transatlantic aspect in just a moment. Perfect fit for PowerPlay, which is a transatlantic <laughs> podcast. But let's talk about the presence of China. I think a lot of focus went into getting China to come yeah. on board. You took some heat about that, yeah. including in your own party, yeah. Liz Truss, former leader <laughs> and others. Oh, a little, a little laugh there. Sorry, it was just the words Liz Truss. Or China. Uh, as, you, as you say, uh, this, is, this is a decision that I took that you know, it wasn't an easy decision for the reasons that you, uh, you highlighted, but I think it was the right decision. It's the right decision for the country in the long term. I think there can't really be a substantive conversation about AI without involving the world's leading AI nations, and China is indisputably one of those. And that's why I decided to extend the invitation to them, and I'm pleased that they've engaged. And as you said right at the beginning, you know, and it's somewhat it hasn't happened for a long time, that you know, we've all signed the same bit of paper, whether that's us, the Americans, the Europeans, and China, which I think is a good sign of progress. Now, obviously, that there's still work to do, but I believe it was absolutely the right decision to engage China on this topic, even though it's not the easy one. And I should say there are people who have concerns about it who are not just involved in internecine Tory warfare, which can happen as it goes. But why would you trust China on this topic, given that the tensions have run pretty high and our own MI5 intelligence service and also the Intelligence and Security Committee in Parliament has warned about a deluge of espionage and disinformation from Beijing. So it seems like we have two different stories going on at once here. One, you have to have some trust with the Chinese to make this collaboration work. But there's also a lot of distrust in the background. Yeah, so I know our approach to this was set out in our integrated review, which is our national security foreign policy strategy that we refreshed earlier this year under my leadership. There's a great page on there on China in particular, which I'd urge people to have a look at. Ultimately, our approach comes down to three things, protect, align and engage. So my job is to protect the UK against the risks that we face from hostile actors, whoever they may be. That's why, for example, we passed the National Security and Investment Act, which allows us to block hostile investment in sensitive sectors of our economy. Uh, Align because we should be aligned with our allies, like the US, like Australia, and indeed our approach to China is aligned with them, and I speak to those leaders very regularly about it. And lastly, engage. Because we are able to protect ourselves in the areas where it, makes, uh, where it matters, then where it makes sense to engage, we should, because there are clearly global challenges, whether that's the risk of future pandemics, financial stability, climate change, or indeed AI, where there aren't going to be global solutions to those things without engaging with China, and that's why we should, because comforted in the knowledge that we've done what we need to do to protect ourselves against any risks. You warned in fairly dramatic terms of the dangers of AI, a possible risk of extinction, there are many very adverse possibilities on the way. If it gets into the wrong hands, it's not properly regulated. I guess that's something of a selling point uh, for your own project and your own personal commitment to this. But there are those who say, and uh, Meta in the tech sector is one of them, that you're getting a bit caught up in a moral panic here. Are they wrong? 
No, I, I think it's, it's not me who said this, actually. It's developers of the technology themselves have warned, as many of them did earlier this year, that you know, there is the potential risk, and I say potential because there is debate amongst the people developing the technology, debate amongst experts, but there is the potential for AI to pose societal-type risks, like nuclear war or pandemics. And you know, my view is, as someone who's responsible for the safety and security of my country, is that even if these risks or the probability of these risks are small because they are so significant the right thing to do is to make sure that we're taking the steps to protect ourselves that's why i've created the ai safety institute that's why we're investing more than any other country in ai safety research attracting the best and the brightest people here to the uk to work on how we test these models do the safety research to keep people safe and as you see we've involved our intelligence agencies in that and you know they've been actively we published some information from them last week as well so are you more in agreement with a guest that I think you're going to be hosting tomorrow, Elon Musk, who will be speaking with you, I think, at the conclusion of the summit? And he has issued rather graphic warnings about AI. And if I were to put you on a scale between, what? say, mm. Meta which is saying, calm down, everybody, and Elon Musk is saying if this is mismanaged, it could really be, as he puts it, as a potential of civilization destruction. Is he overdoing it as well? No, but I think actually if you... If you Listen to what Elon Musk is, is saying. I think he's someone who, for a long time, to his credit, for over a decade, has been talking about the potential risk of AI uh, it, it, and this existential risks or societal risks, however you want to describe them. But he also talks uh, very passionately, as he did today, about the incredible benefits that AI can bring. And you know, my, you know, what I want to do is make sure people are reassured that we're handling the risks so that they can focus on enjoying the benefits. And we're already seeing them starting to manifest themselves, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in education. AI is a general purpose technology, you know, like steam power, like electricity, that has the potential to transform every aspect of society, our economy, public services. And I do want us to benefit from all those things. And we are, but we just need to make sure that we can manage the risks. So that's the thing that we can focus most on. And I think actually, there's probably quite strong alignment around what I've just said. He's a controversial guest and having that visualisation of the number 10 or that famous number 10 on the door with the X symbol of the platform that Elon Musk now heads, formerly known as Twitter, looked a bit like a special welcome for someone who is criticised for spreading disinformation, for endorsing unverifiable posts. You could say that your guest is kind of part of the technological problem you want to solve. Well, no, as I said, he, he is someone who actually has for a very long time, for a decade or so, been warning about the potential risks of AI and has said that governments and others need to be engaged in managing and mitigating against these risks. He's someone who is a leading developer of AI technology himself, so he understands this space particularly well. But this is not just about him. Right, we have attracted over 100 of the leading AI nations, civil society experts, but also the developers of the technology together here in the UK. I think that speaks to our leadership on this topic, but also our ability as a country to convene people together to focus uh, on this. And I think it's... You know, but you haven't to- really answered my question to whether he's in any sense a kind of problematic person in some of the ways that he runs part of his businesses or his vision for this all comers he's only just taken down some very very difficult well, and you, disinformative well, so posts. i can tell you what we've done here in the uk is we've passed something called the online safety act which again i think is on, on the 
kind of forward-leaning edge of, of what other countries have done. And that gives us and the regulators here the power to compel large social media companies to remove harmful or illegal content from their platforms, gives the regulator the power to find them when that isn't being done. Now, this has been a Is that a message si- you would drive home to Elon Musk if you were to? But again, you know, I think you were trying to personalize it. And that, a my, little like bit, that, yes, yeah, because but, he but, is but, such a big character well, in, the, but, in this debate. But this is, goes far beyond him. That go, This goes to the safety of our children. There are a range, and you mentioned Meta before, right? This goes to a range of very significant social media platforms, where, and we want to make sure that our children are protected online as they are you know, walking around our streets, and our new act gives us the powers and the regulator the powers to remove harmful content, whether that is things that are illegal or disinformation and gives us quite strong uh, tools in the form of significant fines to enforce it. And I think that's the right thing to do. It's interesting that the clocks here in Downing Street are not really digital, are they? I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apologies. Yes. No, no need to apologise. Yeah. It's a podcast charm moment. Yeah. <laughs> Your closest ally, the, the US, has just published a raft of measures mm. to regulate, requiring AI companies to conduct safety testing and disclose results to mm. the government. Do you anticipate the UK will require companies to do the same and in the same way? And to what extent mm. are you completely aligned there with that uh, you know, I order think, from, from Washington? Yeah, I think we're very aligned with the US. Obviously, you know, I was in DC earlier this year. People may recall the conversation that the president and I had about AI at the time. And our teams have been in close touch since then. I very much welcome the vice president's uh, presence here, her speech that she gave earlier today, but, but also the US executive order. And I think our approaches are, as I said, very similar. You heard from the Commerce Secretary today at the summit that they plan to work extremely closely with our AI Safety Institute on exactly these challenges. It's making sure that governments, because we can't have companies marking their own homework, is that it's governments who are doing the safety testing and evaluation of models, ideally before they're released to the public, to make sure that they are safe and we've managed the risks. Now, that is going to be the subject of our discussion tomorrow between the companies and the leaders about how we turn some of these principles into practice. It would be very churlish to say that you haven't achieved something by convening this. A lot of people first said, well, nobody will come. But actually, you know, if you've got the Vice President Kamala Harris is probably about to walk through through some door not too far away from us. So you've got Ursula von der Leyen, you have and Venice, others leaders haven't come. But my one of my American colleagues who, who covers this said, look, in a sense, you know, she seemed like led the way on this. The White House has stepped up pretty fast and has kind of stolen some of your thunder with this executive order. So little bits, of course, it would be a very unworthy thought. But do you think I was actually leading on this and now here comes the big boots of Washington? Gosh, no, I I think actually the opposite. I'm really pleased that the the US have taken this moment when we're convening this summit for the vice president to give a really important speech on on AI, for the president to release the executive order, for there to be the announcement of a US safety institute alongside the announcement of our safety institute. I think that's incredibly positive. I want everyone to be doing the same thing. I think that just, this is not going to be solved by any one country. And then my point here is, you know, we are going to need to work together. I think we've taken a lead in putting this topic on the agenda and convening people, but ultimately this is going to be something that we solve together. I'm 
delighted that President von der Leyen is here. The EU is a big player in this. And then the, G, the, the G7, G, you know, and, and just the last thing, this is really sorry. important, right? Because you know, the G7, Fumio Kishida has taken a lead in the Hiroshima process on this in the G7. And I know Georgia Maloney, the Prime Minister of Italy, is going to put AI squarely on the G7 agenda for us next year in Georgia. I'm delighted Georgia's here as well. So look, this is not about any one pun- person or one country. I think all of us have to do. Do you think you've got any hope of getting Germany's Olaf Scholz on board? Germany's a, a major player in the AI. Yeah, and, and, and they said that, that you know, they're signed up to the G7 process. And that's why I'm delighted. You know, the, we've got Georgia here who will be carrying that on next year as someone who's... We have some other meetings coming up. Do you see German participation? Yes, and I've spoken, I've spoken about this topic with all my counterparts. And indeed, that, you know, the, the German minister is here today participating in the summit. Uh, and so I think you've got representation, as you said, from dozens of countries who have all signed the communique. Uh, you know, I'm delighted that we've been able to achieve that. And now we just need to keep building just, just on that a, progress. Just a quick word before we move on to another topic. The idea that possibly this, this could hamper the UK's efforts to attract AI companies when Britain needs a competitive edge here. Some people are saying you're kind of regulating before the market is in any sense mature and before you know what yeah. you're regulating. Yeah, look, I think that's a really interesting question. So the first thing to say is I think the UK is the leading AI nation in Europe. Uh, you know, if you look at all the large companies, the large language models, where do they all have their European headquarters? It's here in the UK, all opened over the past year. DeepMind is headquartered here under the brilliant leadership of Demis, who's an uh, absolute guru on, on all of this. Demis has service. Yes, uh, who, who founded DeepMind, uh, which is now part of Google, but they're headquartered out of here. Uh, so look, the, the UK is already a leading AI nation in Europe, the leading AI nation in Europe, measured by research citations. Well, yeah, it's now owned by Google. It wasn't able to stay. Yeah, but in, wholly owned. Yeah. Yeah, in this but country. they've headquartered their research and their efforts here, and Demis is here. And if you look at research citations, VC investment, you could actually see the, the UK is unquestionably Europe's leading AI nation. But you're right about the future. And again, I think this is, this is part of what makes the UK well-placed to lead this conversation. I think our approach to regulation is largely cons- widely considered around the world as being proportionate. It is principles-based, it is flexible, it protects what we need to protect whilst allowing space for innovation. And you see that, for example, in financial services, where it was our regulator who pioneered the regulatory sandbox, which has now been copied all around the world. It's a good tangible example of our approach to these things and getting that balance right. And all the conversations I've had with companies around the world actually look to the UK for these types of solutions. Let's turn to the aftermath of the terrible Hamas attack on on Israel on October the 7th and what has unfolded since. You're talking, I think, to the French and and Dutch about plans to send humanitarian Mm. aid to Gaza by ship to ease the plight of Palestinian civilians to alleviate pressure on that border crossing with Egypt, which has become such a choke point. How much progress are you making on that? I think the first thing to say is, you know, we've already worked very hard with all our partners to get aid into Gaza. We've doubled our budget here and we were already one of the leading contributors to the UN efforts in the region. The first plane, UK plane, is already in the region and the second plane, it's on its way in the coming days. And it's a feature of all my engagement with leaders. I was just speaking yesterday to Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Abbas, and I obviously visited the region recently and and spoke to almost everybody. And we'll continue to do everything we can to get aid into it. And I, I, I remain, you know, cautiously optimistic that the flow of aid 
should and will increase across the Rafa crossing. Now, there are some logistical reasons why that hasn't happened, which we're looking to play a part in alleviating. Um, but as I said, we want to see aid going in, but also we want to see foreign nationals and hostages coming out. Sorry, but just to be clear, that the plan that I was referring to is a rather specific one, which is to send in more aid by ship and deliveries by sea would inevitably necessitate a pause in the fighting to allow that to happen and to be uh, unloaded safely. How is that going down with all Israeli counterparts? Yeah, no, so I spoke to Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday about both the concept of humanitarian pauses, but it said it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to you know, have completely reliable conversations uh, with Hamas when you're dealing with a terrorist organization, which is obviously present on the ground. Uh, but given I've consistently said it's important to get humanitarian aid in, it's right that we look at all the different ways that that is possible. I've had that conversation with multiple counterparts, but our priority continues to be making sure that the flow of aid through RAFA increases in both regularity and scale. Now, I'm cautiously optimistic that that can and will happen. That's what we want to see and we're trying to do everything we can and play our part in making sure that that does happen. How do you feel about the the mood and the the more overheated parts of of this argument that has has arisen in this country as well about the the relative uh, rights and and wrongs of how Israel is responding particularly how Benjamin Netanyahu is responding to the crisis we have a lot of marches, we have a lot of protests. Some people are at the extremes, your own Home Secretary has talked about hate marches but a lot of people are simply very concerned. To what extent do you understand that and what, what would you advise? Well, it's an incredibly difficult situation. I think I can set out a few reflections over the past couple of weeks and my thoughts. I think the first is you know, what happened to the people of Israel was absolutely horrific. Uh, having been there and seen firsthand, spoken to people, watched the videos, it's hard to come away from that and, and not deeply understand their pain. And their absolute right to defend themselves to ensure that nothing like this can ever happen again. I think that's just not a right that the Israelis have. It is a duty, I think, of their leaders to ensure the safety and security of their country. And we will support them in that. Now, at the same time, I've always said that they should do that in a way that minimizes the impact on civilians. And I've been very clear we want to get aid into Gaza to help people. And I made the point in Parliament that I understand what the British Muslim community is going through here, and we stand with them too. Now, of course, they condemn what Hamas did because there's no way to justify that in any way, shape or form, and everyone should condemn it unequivocally. Um, But they worry about the response, and it's right that we then... We see some some protests that are are excusing Hamas. Double down, And and that's not at all excusable. Right. There can be no uh, justification for what Hamas did. And nor, by the way, can there be any justification for supporting Hamas in the UK or glorifying terrorism. Those are illegal. Hamas is a prescribed organisation here in the UK. And, of course, people have a right to protest. What people do not have a right to do is to glorify or support terrorist organisations. And they do not have any right to so stir sh- up Should those marches be closed down if they or, do so? I, the police have the powers already to arrest people who, under the Terrorism Acts, who are supporting or glorifying terrorism. Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organisation. That is crystal clear. There is no grey there. There is black and white. That is illegal and wrong. But also what is wrong is inciting religious or racial violence and hatred. That is unacceptable. And unfortunately, we've seen a a significant rise in anti-Semitic behaviour over the past few weeks. That's just simply not acceptable. And the police should do everything in their uh, power to stamp that out. 
Some final thoughts before I think you have to, to go off to do something even more uh, important and significant than talking on this podcast. It would be very nice to come back next year and see where you have got to with your great AI plans. Would I be able to come and still talk to you in number 10 Downing Street? Yeah, of course. And I think what I'm... In a year's of, time. Yeah, one of the things that I'm really pleased about at this summit, and you can see the support for it, is that the countries are signing up to host future summits. So we've had the announcement today of both South Korea and France hosting the next two summits over the next 12 months because everyone recognises that, you know, whilst this is a very welcome summit, it's a first step. And this conversation needs to carry on. And that's why it's important that there's a regular dialogue. And I'm delighted and grateful to uh, South Korea and France for hosting the next two summits. I, I, so I wonder whether I'm being dead pa- deadpanned by the Prime Minister. I really meant, are you likely to be in number 10 Downing Street in a year's time? Yeah, I'm very focused on delivering for the country. And I think we're making very good progress. I set up five priorities at the beginning of the year to halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut our waiting lists and stop the boats. We're making progress on those. But also, over the past month, I've taken a series of decisions that will ensure that this country can look forward to a brighter future in the we long We knew Rishi Sunak was going to get that list in there, listeners. Last question, we ask everybody, who would you like to hear on this podcast, who Ooh, would we persuade um, you to listen to? Well, we, you know, we talked about Elon Musk and you asked about him and I'm looking forward to speaking to him tomorrow, but I feel duty-bound to give you a Brit. So actually, I was, we mentioned him earlier as well as Demis Sasabas, the CEO of DeepMind. And we're talking about AI. You know, there's few better people for you to talk to who understand this, who have thought deeply about it. He's a fascinating character, a brilliant entrepreneur, a proud Brit, also a chess prodigy. So I'm sure you'd have lots to talk to him about. Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and also now sporadic booker for the future <laughs> of Power Play. Thank you very much indeed for having us. Thank you for having me. Coming up on Power Play, our power panel of Politico's leading experts with me to explore what we've just heard. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. The company's vaccine technology is built on a protein-based platform and combines the power of a well-understood approach with an innovative nanoparticle technology. It is intended to help protect against some of the world's most pressing viral diseases, including COVID-19 and influenza. Novavax is collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry, to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Because protecting one of us can help protect all of us. Learn more at www.novavax.com. Welcome back to Power Play, and we're here now to take stock of my conversation with Rishi Sunak. With our own power panel, I have Stephen Overly, host of the popular Politico Tech podcast in Washington, D.C. Hi there, Stephen. Hi, thank you for having me. Great pleasure. This really is your subject. And here in London, Matt Honeycomb-Foster is the UK news editor at Politico. Hi there, Matt. Great to be here. Stephen, I was slightly surprised by Rishi Sunak heaping praise in my interview there with him on Elon Musk. He seemed to see him as a sort of sage who's been forewarning the world about the perils of AI. Now, Musk, as we know, is not exactly an uncontroversial figure. What did you make of that? Not at all. Uh, You know, I think that there is this desire to try to separate Elon Musk, the provocateur, from Elon Musk, 
the tech executive. You know, that's very hard to do, frankly, because he leans into the provocateur identity quite often. But, you know, in this case, when we're talking about government leaders trying to regulate this nascent but very powerful industry, they really have no choice but to engage Elon Musk, as well as, you know, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg or Google CEO Sundar Pichai. You know, they have no choice but to engage them in a sort of professional and serious way because they're influential players here. So on the one hand, um, you know, I can imagine Elon Musk is a bit of a volatile character to invite to any roundtable, but uh, you really cannot avoid extending that invitation. Just staying with you with you for a moment, Stephen, did you get the impression, though, that he was sort of keener, a lot keener, actually, on the Elon Musk analysis than the Meta one? We heard Nick Clegg of Meta out and about in the UK saying, well, there's a little bit of moral panic going on here. It seemed to me that the prime minister was picking a side. Well, I've heard this, you know, I've interviewed for my podcast a number of UK officials, and I've sort of heard this sentiment again and again, where this summit is really focused on the big picture concerns around these frontier models, right? Can all-powerful AI destroy humanity? And and how do we stop that? And that is rhetoric that you've heard often from Elon Musk and others who subscribe to that kind of thinking. And so I do think that there's some, you know, ideological alignment when it comes to AI between folks like Elon Musk and what the, the prime minister and other UK officials have talked about. Interestingly, we heard a slightly different sentiment, I think, from U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. And so it's clear to me that there is not universal agreement exactly on on what risks to really be talking about here. How would you define that slight difference in between Kamala Harris and Rishi Sunak? Well, I think it depends on whether you look at the long term, very future focused risks of AI or you look at the risks that are here and now. And and I think, you know, from Vice President Kamala Harris's comments, she was very focused on present day threats to AI, concerns about discrimination and bias, concerns about disinformation and deep fakes, you know, really present day challenges that AI exacerbates, I would say. That seems to be less the focus of the summit in the UK. They seem much more focused on longer term risk planning, managing, you know, the harmful effects of these frontier models, the risks that are to come, not the risks that are necessarily happening now. Matt, the risks that are to come clearly foremost, I think, in the prime minister's mind. But has he pulled off something of a diplomatic coup in getting the US and China to sign off this joint communique? I suppose it's quite helpful if you've got a lot of people, including in his own party, I was teasing him a little bit about that, uh, who said you shouldn't be having the Chinese at the table with you. We don't trust them. I thought it was really, really notable in this interview. Almost word for word, Rishi Sunak used what has now become the kind of Conservative Party's uh, slogan of long-term decisions for a brighter future. When you pressed him on this China point, he's had critics from his own party. You know, as you mentioned there, Liz Truss got a little, little giggle out of him. And uh, other China hawks in his party have said, you should not engage with China on this point. Well, he now has kind of United States cover, backing from lots of other global powers who have decided to engage with China today. He's got a communique he can wave about and say, look, it's a starting point, but we have done something that people could not do before. And I think number 10 will be very happy with the way today's gone, even if, as he made pretty clear 
a lot of the de- the detail and turning this into uh, practical reality is, is very much you know still to come. So you think he kind of brought himself cover on that question of working closely with China? Because in a way, it was Rishi Sunak, as you know, doesn't take many risks. He did take a bit of a risk here, didn't he? Yeah, and I think that's that's a really interesting point. A lot of what the Prime Minister's been trying to do over the past few months, you know, his party is absolutely languishing in the polls. The Conservatives look like they are headed for a hefty defeat. But he has almost been trying to pitch himself as a radical change candidate. Now, he is a, you know, quite a cautious guy who likes to spend a lot of time poring over the information and coming to a decision. But this rebrand, I mean, this feels almost part of that. It is a thing that has annoyed parts of his own party. Uh, it is a thing that um, sort of looked quite risky from the outside, but actually he can say, look, I've, I've got results from that. Now, there's a big caveat with this, which is, as we saw when Sunak uh, landed a Brexit deal last year, he ironed out quite a lot of problems with the EU on research funding. This doesn't automatically lead to a big bump in the polls or a, a you know a massive round of applause domestically. But it is one more thing the Prime Minister can point to and say, look, I took a tough decision and I got something done. It's always good to look to the future if you don't want to be history as a Prime Minister, or at least history not quite yet. But Stephen, if you're in the UK, of course, you have an interest in saying we are alongside the US. You know, we are the mouse that roared here. The UK and the US are on the same page, that kind of rhetoric. But how closely are the two countries working on this? I think they are working together closely. You know, there's a lot of communication between the Sunak administration and the Biden administration, including between Biden and Sunak himself, you know, earlier this year, meeting in Washington, talking about AI. And I do think that both countries share a sense of concern that regulation should not stymie or undermine innovation. You know, we hear that kind of balance talked about a lot. And the reality is that you know, the UK and the US probably have the most financial interest right now in AI being successful and taking off. They also, frankly, have some of the the greatest risks. But in that sense, I do think that there's some alignment in how they go about regulating in this space. And I heard this in an interview I did earlier with Emran Meehan, who's the director general for digital technology there in the UK, making he made the point that he doesn't think the UK or the US is really in a rush to regulate AI particularly in the same rush that maybe the European Union has been in to regulate AI. And so even with this AI summit, even with the executive order that the Biden administration released um, this week, I still think that there is a sense that they don't want to overregulate and risk losing out on the financial upside of AI. Do you think the relationship we saw when we were in number 10, Kamala Harris, her team were about to come through the door. It's another way to put it kind of a little bit bluntly, tech here, AI, there are also ways that the UK can show that it is working closely with the US that's important in Washington. Is there an emerging kind of field of tech diplomacy? I might uh, hear from both of you on that, but uh, Stephen, first from the Washington perspective, I guess it keeps you getting invited to the US and vice versa. Absolutely. You know, t- I, I like to think that tech underpins pretty much all diplomacy nowadays. Um, and, and there's really no geopolitical topic that we talk about that doesn't have some sort of tech angle. And I think, you know, I used to be a trade reporter before I was hosting this tech podcast. And I covered often how the UK very much wanted a trade deal with the US um, and very much wanted to engage with the US on trade. And, and there has been some progress on that of late. But tech 
rather than trade or some other economic issues, has been an area where I think the U.S. has been more willing to engage and more inclined to engage with the EU. And so there are some natural alignment on these topics between the two. And I I have to add here, you know, we were talking about China earlier. Uh, There is very much this uh, China versus the West mentality around AI. And I think there is a strong sense that the US, the UK, and the European Union need to find ways to be aligned on AI risk and safety if they're going to be any sort of counterweight to whatever China does on AI risk and safety. Interesting point there, Matt. If you can't get anywhere on a trade deal, I think Stephen was a bit more optimistic than I am on that. But anyway, you you might as well go on tech. You know, if trade is difficult, make alliances around tech. Do you think that's something that we're going to see more of from the UK perspective? I think certainly from Sunak. I mean, he has, um, you know, he's, he's often described in the press as a kind of tech bro prime minister. He wears a hoodie. He's he's young. He frankly knows how to use a, a laptop, like unlike a lot of MPs in the British Parliament, I think. But um, he has made this an absolute key part of his international identity, his pitch to the world. My colleague Annabelle has been writing lately, she had this great thesis that Britain really wants to become the kind of conference centre of the world. If you imagine a kind of glorified... Um, Birmingham NEC, which is a particularly kind of a glamorous uh, arena in, in the West Midlands here. But basically, Britain wants to inject itself into these big debates. It sort of accepts, I think, post-Brexit that it can't be, you know, the big dog in the room, but it wants to be the person who brings these power players, uh, helpful plug there, together. And um, I think the AI summit is absolutely a big part of putting Britain at the centre of that. Uh, it was interesting at the end, uh, Stephen, we always ask people who they would like to hear next uh, on Power Play, because I do believe in getting my bookings done for me, you know, so that uh, like most journalists, I might you know, kind of, so I can be in the bar rather than uh, having to hit the emails. And he, Rishi Sunak wanted to hear from Elon Musk and Demis Hazabis. Interesting choices. Fascinating choices. I I will tune in if either of them uh, actually join the podcast uh, and and be listening intently. For me, I I think it's interesting that, you know, this AI Safety Summit is going to be next hosted in the next events will be in France and South Korea. I do think it will be interesting to hear the perspectives that those countries bring to this conversation. France has really tried to stake a position for itself in AI, particularly around open AI models. And they, much like the UK, really want to be an innovation engine, not just a regulatory uh, policeman, if you will. And so I I think that they would have valuable perspective um, to bring. But I would say South Korea, too, or another country, frankly, that is outside of this Western bubble, um, may have a very unique and different perspective on on AI that uh, I'd love to hear on Power Play personally. There you go. I'm getting all my bookings done now. I could not. It just reminds me, Stephen, when you were talking, I couldn't get him to say that he had was able to convince Olaf Scholz from Germany to come along on this ride, as I don't know whether that is just he's being cautious or whether the Germans are not yet fully brought in. Well, maybe he should be uh, a power play guest as well to get his take. But, you know, to me, the the politics around AI in the European Union, um, and and that's perhaps a whole nother panel discussion. But I, I think my brief synopsis or takeaway is that you know, the EU traditionally wants to be out front as a regulator of technology. AI is tricky because they are now regulating a technology that is very much 
still developing and still growing, whereas, you know, their regulations of social media, for instance, have come about when those industries were already somewhat mature. And so I do think you'll see some tension in the European Union, and you already do, around how heavy-handed this regulation should be if you don't want to handicap an industry that's still uh, underway. Well, thanks to my power panel, both to Stephen and to Matt. And do be sure to join us next week when I'll be talking to another prime minister. Yes, this is the show to come on if you're a world leader or you aspire to be. So stay tuned. And if you haven't already, do take a moment to follow PowerPlay wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I have a question to you in our audience too. Are you team meta, not too worried about AI eating up humanity? Or team Musk and Sunak, concerned about the possible drastic consequences of AI? Let us know. We'd love to read your thoughts. You can get in touch directly with our team wherever you are by emailing us powerplay at politico.eu. And thanks to my producer in London, Peter Snowden, and from Berlin, our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. Join us next week for another edition of PowerPlay. A message from Novavax. Novavax is a global leader in vaccine development and research. The company is working to make safe and effective vaccines available to help protect those who need them around the world. Novavax is also collaborating with leading organizations across the global vaccines landscape, including research institutions, government agencies, foundations, and industry to help ensure access and increase uptake of vaccines worldwide. Learn more at www.novavax.com.